matter. I mean, it just one doesn't have to prove anything or earn a certain amount of money. Just just the existence of you makes you matter. But to shift it to that calling, how you matter, is is the beauty of the journey. I think. Welcome to Perennials, a podcast about growing up, getting wise, and trying to live a good life. I'm Victoria Russell. I'm so happy to share this conversation with my teacher and friend, Maya Sanyal. Maya and I met about 10 years ago when I was a sophomore undergraduate student at Drew University here in New Jersey, and I started working at the Writing Center, where Maya was assistant director. I always had so much respect for Maya. She was so warm and had this bright smile and beautiful laugh. And she was also really smart and razor sharp and very wise. And my respect for Maya has only grown over the years. She is not only a great teacher, but a student of the world who's always learning and willing to try something new. Maya has a PhD in English literature and a master's degree in counseling over 15 years experience teaching, advising, and counseling students and young professionals. And now she's an entrepreneur with her company, Alcadevica Project Solutions, which educates students and professionals to pursue lifelong success using the framework of mindset, career, and wealth. Maya and I talk about a lot in this conversation. We cover a lot of ground, how to make room for both philosophy and action, We talk about making space for individualism and community, for information and knowledge, for depression and joy. We talk about discomfort with money and learning about finances and how, despite our ideals, none of us is entirely separate, pure, or innocent from the scarier or more complicated or darker parts of the world. Maya believes in the power of being awake of noticing, of having courage, and seeking wisdom, and learning, and loving ourselves and each other. I could not fit all of Maya's wisdom into one episode. I could barely fit it into two. So if you want to hear the continuation of our conversation, please come back here tomorrow for part two, or subscribe to Perennials wherever you get your podcasts, and it will show up in your feed as soon as it's published tomorrow. You can find Maya on Instagram and TikTok at maya.sanyal.phd or on her website, alkadevica.com. And you can find her on YouTube to see a lot of really great videos. Go to YouTube, type in Alkadevica. You'll find her there. I loved having this conversation with Maya and I really think you'll enjoy listening to it. Maya, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Victoria. So... I'm very excited to talk about your your area of passion, I would say, right? Would you call it a passion of yours? I would say it's more of a calling. Mm. How would you distinguish calling and passion? I think there's an idea out there at this point in time that one has to have passion early on and that passion is supposed to be the starting point if people are not beginning with passion, something is off. And as with everything else, I tend to question the use of words very uncritically. So I'll often have 
in my work as a career counselor and a writing teacher, I'll have students say, I'm not passionate about this topic. How can I write about it? Or I'm not passionate about this work. How can I do it? And over the years, I've found that, especially for starting professionals, the mindset needs more to be about learning the trade, just getting very skillful at the work itself. And over time, passion builds if it's the right fit. And calling, in my mind, is a step beyond passion because calling is where one genuinely accepts that it's going to be blood, sweat, and tears. And one has this deep sense of values that drives it beyond feeling passionate about it. Calling is when even on the days I don't feel passionate about my work because the value system is so deep that I will do the grunt work and the hustle. So in terms of, I guess, a, 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 like a continuum, there's really getting to know some skill set. Then there's discovering passion because one is good at it and it is fun. And beyond that is calling where even when it's not fun, one keeps doing it and learning and growing against all odds because there is almost this larger spiritual piece to it. Dang, that was a good first, <laughs> first thought. I'm so glad I stumbled into that word passion. <laughs> Just trust me, right? From zero to a hundred. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> My students often say, Maya, do you ever stop? And I say, I don't know how else to be. This is just, I'm not being anything different from, you know, who I am 24 seven. And they're like, hmm, that's a problem. <laughs> I know, I genuinely love it. I, I really did stumble. I was like, I don't think passion's the right word, but let's hear what Maya's gonna say because she will, she will absolutely have the right word there. <laughs> and you did. And I'm glad that we right head on talked about that, um, yeah. that word. And it's really helpful to hear you talk about a calling as something that also isn't just 100% fun or glamorous or, or moving or might not even feel 100% fulfilling all the time, but that it's something that you've, you've, you're choosing to stick with through the drudgery or boredom and the, and the excitement and the joy and the, you know, struggles, all of it. Um, because of your values. I really, really appreciate that. We tend to live in a culture where everything is so superlative. Everything is about the bling and the phrase even you used 100%. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it is very much a cultural narrative that things have to be shiny and exciting. And the thing they don't tell you, and I, you know, I have this conspiracy theory about adults that don't say things to young people. I don't know why, but when I was young and now that I'm older, I keep realizing why didn't they tell me this is how it was. I mean, this is my ongoing complaint with adults in my life from when I was in my twenties and early thirties. Why didn't they tell me the stuff that really mattered? 
and that is one reason why I do think of my work as a calling because not everything I say is always fun to hear and definitely not always fun to do. But I find that once we are able to step away from that illusion that whatever it is we are doing must have an immediate result or we are failures or one of my favorites in my work with my students, if it's hard, I must be stupid or I must be bad at it because it shouldn't be hard if I'm smart enough. People have really bought into these logical fallacies. If it's hard, it's probably meant to be hard. And it's not about the person's stupidity or lack of merit. It's more about accepting that it's going to be hard work. And that is something I really wish somebody had told me when I was in my late teens and early 20s that success is 90% effort. Simple formula. If you keep doing something over and over and over without getting distracted by all the illusory narratives that are around us, those are the people who become successful. They keep their heads down, they keep doing what they're doing, they learn their trade, and then they become passionate because now they know what they're doing and they're good at it and there's self-confidence. And then passion sometimes can become a calling, sometimes it can stay as a passionate hobby, sometimes it can be a second side hustle, but so many of us and our younger generations have been fed this lie that things have to be exciting and fun in order to have meaning. And I think it's very important, particularly in the times we are going through and beyond that we question that narrative because it's not true. Yeah. And I, sometimes I feel like we live in like a makeover culture, like where we see we see transformations, whether it's like, you know, a celebrity or a person who is telling us the story of how they went from, from having not a dime to their name to like being a millionaire or whatever. Um, and like, you know, I'm living my best, truest life and you can too for the low, low price of whatever my, you know. <laughs> and the, here's the three steps. Yes. Yep. Yeah, if you if you notice, uh, I don't know if you have Instagram, but I, I had the misfortune and fortune of having to start an Instagram account early in February because of my work, because I finally realized that that's where my students are and nobody reads emails. So I <laughs> being being a Gen X, I kept saying for a long time, well, they should. And then I realized they don't. And so I stepped into the world of Instagram and then COVID happened. And one of the fascinating things I've noticed in the last eight to 12 weeks is the sheer number of programs offered by professionals with training, but there's this consistent subtext of, if you follow my path in these three steps, in these four steps, in these five steps, your life is going to change. And after a while, because my background is in English literature and studying text, I, I do it automatically without even intentionally doing it. I look at texts and I say, what's, what's going on here? What's the underlying 
political motive, socio-political motive, economic motive. And it's this, again, the thing you said about this obsession with a quick fix, that somehow there's a very easy way. And if only you can find the key, you're going to be one of the lucky ones to do it overnight and quickly. And it's, it bothers me at this point. I think sometimes I'm getting a little grumpy as I get older. I really feel it for sure because it feels so uh, insensitive and so fake and disingenuous to say, here's an easy way to live life when nothing about life, nothing about living life is easy. Yes. It's, it's just such a lie. And because people buy into that lie, they believe that they are doing something wrong. And because of that belief, they are doing unhelpful behaviors. And I do this too. I'm, I will never for a second say I am exempt from it, which I think is even worse because I watch myself do it and say, wow, if I'm doing it despite being aware of the falsity of the narrative, what must it be like for a 15-year-old or a 20-year-old or a 25-year-old who hasn't yet lived long enough to see beyond the surface level of this is this shiny flashy world where everybody's succeeding except me yes and even if it's not a quick fix even if a person is telling you oh it's going to take a lot of work just the idea that there is this after that there is this destination point at which you will now be this forever happy Yes. Right. That it's you're going to get there and you won't have to do a thing ever again. You won't have to lift a finger. Success will have arrived and that's the end of it. You're just going to ride that success. And then the, one of the things I love about social media, as much as I do point out to people I work with, is, you know, there's a reason why we call it virtual reality. It's an oxymoron and it's that's what it is virtual reality it's fake reality everything on social media beyond a certain point of cultural representation is fake because it does not do much to represent the hard work that goes behind anything even the making of your episodes in the end there's this you know final cut but there's hours and hours of work that go into building it that nobody gets to see. All they see is the final podcast product. And along the way, we've just so disconnected ourselves with the idea that it's always a process, that there is never an end to it. And, and again, I say all this with this kind of inner frustration and sadness that I, I wish somebody had sat me down when I was 20 and said, this is how most of life is. Life is work. Life is moments of fulfillment and joy and satisfaction. And the rest of it is working towards those moments. That doesn't mean that that's failure. Right. A lot of life is ordinary right? Huge. I, I, it's funny you say that just today morning I was sitting and thinking about what it would be like to really not have the internet in my life and have books. And I started doing these YouTube videos because partly it's just fun and curiosity. And I preach to my 
students a lot that I just did a short episode today on discomfort tolerance and I keep telling myself if I'm going to preach it, I'm going to have to practice it. So it's almost, uh, uh, this is a literary critic, uh, a Boxian reference to the idea of play, life as, uh, in life as playing, uh, engaging in life as play, that doesn't mean one doesn't take it seriously, but not too seriously. And I was longing for the day of just writing snail mail and waiting for the response and not worrying about what comment somebody might put on a video. And it got me thinking about we, without even knowing it, we have gotten to a place of life that is so fast and so exhausting that everyone I think is, is burned out, whether they realize it or not. Yes. Everyone's burned out because it's impossible for us to sustain this sense of instant feedback, instant expectation, processing all the negative feedback, the positive feedback, it doesn't matter. Just the sheer volume and the sheer speed of it burns people out. Yes. I, I recently posted something on Instagram and I said, self-care is social justice work. And a couple of my students wrote back and said, I have no idea what you mean. And I said, look, if you are not doing self-care, it's really a matter of then burning out and not being able to be part of the system in the first place. So self-care is not even an option anymore as much as a discipline, because without it, we will not be able to participate in the body politic. And the more caring and compassionate and intelligent people, the people who are givers and thinkers and feelers don't practice self-care, the more the people we need to be in the body politic are the ones who are getting burned out. So yes. for me, it's, it's pretty much a, a factor of really critically thinking about there is no should and there is no reading and watching YouTube videos beyond what serves one's purpose. I think we're getting to the stage where we're really perhaps being forced to learn to curate information so that it's allowed to become knowledge. Mm. Right. And, and we need to train younger people to do that because it's the same as in the 19th century or the 18th century when there was an influx of books on, I was saying this to you the other day that at end of the 19th century self-help books were huge because society then was going through a massive industrial transformation. And same 150 years later, right now we are seeing this massive growth in self-help books because people are looking for answers but it's very important to be mindful of the fact that the tool itself is never the answer. It's how we use the tool that is the answer. And so many people, including myself, are so overwhelmed with the sheer availability of tools that until we stop and very dispassionately, very critically think about which are the tools that are going to help us shift from information overload to actual knowledge content and eventually to wisdom, the tools are going to own us. Mm. Unfortunately, the, the seekers, the, uh, the storytellers, the 
ones who are creatives, we've come to live in a world where there is so much noise that even if they are speaking, the message isn't always getting to the ones who need to hear it. And so I bring up that as a big problem to then shift it to the way I deal with the sense of frustration and despair I feel by saying, we still always have the capacity to act locally. You know, in my 20s, I used to feel this frustration that if I can't change the world in its big problems, then what's the point of doing any of it? And as I've grown older, I've realized that as kitschy as it sounds, every little bit does matter because the individual who is getting exposed to the training and the shift in thinking is being helped. Right. So I have this wonderful saying I sent to my mentors a few years ago that I don't know if how many of them changed the world, but I know one person whose world they've changed, and that's mine. Mm. Right. And what you are doing in your work, you'll share a blog post or a video where you talk about both concrete kind of, okay, here's something you can do to gain more information about a, a career track, but then also here's something you can do on an emotional level to prepare yourself for something or to make sure you're not kind of getting in your own way. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I watched your video about informational interviews where you talked about someone who wants to learn about a certain job or career, sitting down with someone who has that job or is in that field and asking them questions about how they got there. And it's funny because I kind of feel like Perennials is a show of informational interviews. It's all like, how did you, what was your trajectory? <laughs> um, one of the questions that you suggested people ask is, you know, can you tell me about your career trajectory? And I know that's a very big question and it could probably take a very long time to answer that, but could you talk a little bit about your trajectory and how you came to, is it Alka Devika? Is that how you say it? Mm -hmm. Am I saying that yep. right? Okay. Yep. Yes. <laughs> I'm thinking the bubble in my mind is going, yeah, this is why you shouldn't put stuff out there because your students are going to catch you out. <laughs> <laughs> hey, in an informational interview you want to ask about, tell me how you got here. Well, here's the question. I, I, I am so humbled. Um, I, I actually never thought somebody would ask me that question. So, um, so I'll keep it short because obviously, as you said, all of our stories are so complex and so textured. Yes that we can have multiple conversations and new things will come up. And I think I'll base my response uh, in, in that experience of storytelling. And, and this will hopefully be connected to the, to the fascination with reasoning and with emotions. Uh, when I was in my teens, I grew up in Calcutta, India. I was born and brought up there. And, and that is a lot more of a community groupthink culture. So, one of the differences between the groupthink culture that I grew up in and the individualistic culture that I live in now is in the group culture, the individual's rise and fall can often impact the community's rise and fall. So that's where a lot of the tradition that we must do with the way it's always been done, everything has its place. 
and and as I've grown older and I've learned to see the two separate ways of being in the world, I've learned to respect that there are reasons why each of those mindsets exist. In the group culture, it is very important to have the individual subsumed within the uh, wellness of the group. Because when you're living as a community in harsh conditions, there isn't a lot of luxury to just wander off and do one's thing. And of course, then that becomes very ritualized and eventually petrified and into laws and tradition. And then in, in the individualistic culture I live in now, there's this focus on the individual is the owner of you know, her life and the author of her life and can do what she wants. And on and both sides, there's a lot of advantages and both sides struggle with the idea of, well, you cannot have a community that is obsessively individualistic because then it's, again, it's a, you cannot have, you know, individualistic community that's an oxymoron and you cannot have a community where the individual isn't allowed to have any breathing space so again it's kind of going back to that middle and my career trajectory has been constantly unplanned completely unplanned um, trying to understand and now increasingly tell the stories of that tension so when i was younger and i grew up in a culture where nobody expected me to have a career. I was always expected to study, but I was going to grow up and get married and raise kids and, and be a traditional middle-class housewife. Little did they know. Um, but there was the sense that there were always these stories that people use to either raise people up or to keep them down. And I couldn't have articulated it then, but even when I was a kid and, and in my youth, I was very receptive to and very aware of very often the contradiction in these stories. And so when I started studying literature, it became a fascination with studying how cultural texts make or break people's individual lives because they do. Because books have so much power and traditions that are passed on through books have so much power. So I studied English literature, also I was good at it, so that's what I studied. Um, then I came to do a PhD because my parents said it's either study more or get married, and I was like, hell no. Right? So I went off on this other journey and started even more to understand the power of text. And I also became a writing teacher. So that's really when I think that the game really started to change for me. I started to realize one of the biggest moments of my awakening as I call it is I was sitting in a, a classrooms a, a feminist theory classroom class and the professor said you know if you look at TOC's table of contents of books that's a political entity there's somebody who's decided who's what's going to go in the book there's somebody who's decided what are the images there's somebody who's decided what is going to be the table of contents even the very production of the book, the layers, the pages, the, the kind of um, pictures that are presented, everything is a message. And I, I just sat there saying, every science book I've ever read was almost always about the stories of men, right? Um, or every history book or every geography book or just having grown up in this culture where every text that was given to young people 
was from one perspective or you know a primary perspective and so as i became a writing teacher i realized that reading and writing are extremely political things and i happened to have a i guess facility for working with students and thinking about writing and i realized that in teaching writing i'm mostly at that point talking about people's anxieties because nothing scares people more than writing that's a whole other conversation yes. we can have right yes as a quick aside i always mm-hmm. was so struck in the writing center when like a you know a graduate student a, a guy in his 50s i could just see the 7 year old in him yep. the second he read his paper out loud yep yep so yeah and again we should probably have another chat on that whole uh, piece yes. about you know the, the vulnerability and the strength and the courage of teaching and doing writing but i became a, a writing counselor for lack of a better phrase because i would sit down with students as you did as a peer tutor and say okay let's talk about the fears first let's get all of that out of the way uh, or let's have the fear and still write one word and then you write two words so something you said earlier about how i am you know both very philosophical and very practical comes from that experience i'm a big believer in asking the big philosophical questions of the why but i'm also extremely practical about the how so going back to my childhood again people would always say study but nobody actually said how to study not that they knew mm. so you know so as i've grown older i've constantly tried to balance this tension between keeping the philosophical peace in mind because things are always more complicated than they appear and also having this very practical all right yes you're saying that you're going to get a b or a c and there's no point writing the paper but let's start with one word right let's get something down on paper and most of it was done by instinct but as i kept doing it and i kept hearing feedback people would say students would say wow i've never been able to do this and in 20 minutes i've been sitting on this paper for you know 3 weeks and 20 minutes later with you i'm walking away with this starting of a draft it, i realized that there is this place for inspiration and encouragement beyond anything like just just again based on data but it is not very hard it is extremely easy to sit down with a person and say okay here's what you're going to do next just to get you started and here's some of the things that's getting in your way so there i was doing along with all my writing faculty um, we i think we all did a version of this but i was very struck by how much of it was about counseling so then i went and got myself a you know counseling masters in counseling after my phd because i didn't really know what i was doing and for the last 5 years i've been a career counselor and a writer and mostly just you know talking to people and figuring out what they're afraid of and talking to them to a place where they can feel they can take action and after doing that for all these years you know I, i have three big loves in my life one is stories literature one is inspiring the counseling work and the third is doing actual writing work and with those three loves i also realized in the last few years especially that we hardly ever talk about financial success with young people so that's what's gotten my goat most recently and that's a, that's why alkadevika came about because i realized that a lot of my students 
my most recent cohort, the ones I work with are engineers. The ones before I used to work with um, were in liberal arts. But generation after generation of really hardworking students finish college, A, not without an idea of how to transition into successful careers, because it's not automatic. And B, even when they have successful careers, they are often completely lost about finances. And I find that very upsetting because when people have bought into the story that if I work hard and I go to college or trade school or apprenticeship and I do this for four, five, seven, ten years, at the end of it, I'm still living paycheck to paycheck because even though I've done everything right, that's not right. That's just something wrong with that story. So I started, it's very nascent, but I decided I'm going to try to be a businesswoman because this is the latest iteration of I would have never thought I would do a PhD. I would have never thought I would be a teacher in a writing class. I had never thought I would be a career counselor and I never thought I would be a businesswoman. So I'm like, all right, if I'm going to be upset about lack of financial training in young people, then that's something I'm going to help people grow in through what I know, which is career counseling. But we need to have huge conversations with our younger people, early teens and 20s and 30s about, again, learning to think and feel strategically about money. Because money is what at the end ensures social mobility, which is again about social justice. Right? Because social mobility, it, social mobility is not the same thing as just having even a very good paycheck. Because that's not about building wealth or growing wealth or having a sense of what is the plan? What, is, what am I gonna do five years from now? People talk about money and bling. So this goes right back to what we started off with Everybody's constantly talking about the easy fix and the quick fix, but nobody's really, not nobody, but most people aren't really talking about the actual hard work and training it takes to be successful in school, to be successful in college, to be successful in internships, to be successful at their first jobs, and then to be successful in actually managing and growing money. So that's where I've decided I'm gonna spend the next four or five years of my life just to see if, if I can contribute. I may, I may not, but there's only one way to find out. Yeah, I was so glad when you brought that up when we talked the other day, because this is something that, you know, I'm 29 now, so I'm at the end of the, of the 20s decade, and I have had this shift over time of like, you know, I didn't get a credit card until I was 24 because I was like, oh, I don't believe in credit cards, you know? And you and I talked about the aversion to money, talking about it, learning about finances, um, even the word wealth. I have like a, a negative reaction to, I notice in myself. And you and I talked about how you also kind of had this like, oh, I don't want to have anything to do with this, you know, when you were in your 20s um, and how it's this paradox of, okay, you can, you can be disgusted by capitalism and decide, you know what, I hate, I hate all that stuff. And so I'm gonna, I'm just gonna 
ignore it or avoid it, or I'm not going to be a part of it, but ultimately you are a part of it no matter what. I think in some sense, it's like, there's this spot at which it's like a privilege. You're like privileged enough and not privileged enough to like have that reaction. Does that resonate with you? So it's like, you know, if you don't really have a model, you weren't taught, maybe your family didn't um, have wealth, but maybe a good enough paycheck that you've always had your survival needs met, you can kind of be in that spot of idealism and also paralysis because there's idealism of, I just don't even want to be a part of all of that Um, materialism and consumerism and all of it. But there's also the fear that you and I talked about of that. I know I've also experienced of, I, I'm not good at that. I can't understand that. I'm, I start to feel stupid. I start to feel overwhelmed in the face of it. So could you speak to those things a little bit, those reactions? it's that the thing, the difference between information and knowledge, right? There's so much out there that, again, this goes back to that individualistic pressure to say, well, if you want to, why don't you figure it out? Because the information is out there. So I sometimes feel bad for yes. you know, generations after me, because at least I had the excuse of, well, I didn't know where to go because there weren't, you know, finances for dummies or billions of YouTube videos on it. But now there is. So the paralysis is even more because we all know that there is information out there, but because our lives are so exhausted already, that that curating of what is important, which again goes back to mental training and you know mindfulness and managing anxiety, or a, a whole slew of mental health practices, right? So that we are able to be a curate and say, okay, these really are the important things. So in terms of the response to money, even as you were speaking, I've I've been thinking about this since we talked recently. At this point, I would say that irrespective of how I feel about money, and I, I am very much a believer in social justice and shared uh, resources, it just that's just my my political makeup my you know wiring i i'm not sure why anybody needs a six bedroom house if there's two people in it i never have and i never will but i what i would say to a young person today if i could go back and say this to myself in my 20s i would say learn it and then decide if you don't want to use it so that's a very practical approach again it's the it's the knowledge that is lacking and because the knowledge is lacking we are anxious because we know it matters it's an extremely privileged space to be able to say and as you said i was there too that and again i grew up in this very english literature liberal arts privileged kind of uh milieu where the marketplace was considered uh, bad for lack of a better word i'm sure there's a nicer word for it but the marketplace was suspect, right? People who create a literature, and this is very much from the literature point of view, people from high literary backgrounds weren't doing it for the marketplace. And that was all about modernism and postmodernism when the marketplace did become 
real and you had to sell your books to survive. But then it's a false narrative because if you really look back, every quote unquote successful writer or dramatist has always had to sell their place. So again, we live in these very illusory narratives where for the longest time, there was this separation between what is hoity-toity literature because it's not tainted in the marketplace, except that they had to sell, otherwise nobody would be reading it. So there was this whole illusion around what is considered non-market tainted. And, and a lot of, uh, I guess, for my purposes, because of the post-colonial background I come from, there was a sense of middle-class people don't talk about money and upper-class people don't talk about money. Well, that's not a luxury that working-class people have, right? Exactly. But if you are a working-class person, then focusing on a job is also, you know, the goal, right? For them to be told, oh, you need to learn to invest is, is kind of, again, an arrogance. So there's lots and lots of layers to the conversation around money. And therefore, because I know that it is very possible for people to get stuck in all of that, again, very important philosophical discussion. But my approach now is philosophical discussions shouldn't therefore stop people from having the tools of functioning in the world. So my approach at this point is learn it, teach me about stocks, teach me about bonds. I'm 23 years old. Give me a, a full year of curriculum in how to create money from what I'm earning. If I am then in a place where I decide I don't want that, great, right? That's an individual decision. But to deny the knowledge is a problem. And, and to deny that people don't need the, pro need the knowledge, don't need the training, uh, that is something we have to question. Because at the end of the day, as you very well know, the suffering is real. So if you're 29 and looking at your finances and saying, why am I still living, not necessarily paycheck to paycheck, but just a kind of sort of there. At 45, I'm looking at my you know, retirement stuff and I have no idea what's in it, right? I just know I have it and it's there. So lack of knowledge, I think is a problem. Lack of information is not the problem. We, we don't need more information. What we need is a system where that information is effectively being transferred to knowledge so that people can stop being afraid. I'm terrified of money and I'm yeah. still ashamed of talking about money. And then I'm ashamed that I'm ashamed to talk about money because at the end of the day, who's paying my bills? I am, right? So I, I think it's really important to just kind of cut through all the noise and say, Okay, we need to do the hard work of creating systems of, I don't know where it's from, but teaching people one-on-one -on -one in classrooms, in colleges. Here's the basics of, I think you had mentioned it the other day, um, how to pay my taxes, right? Give me the tool, then I get to decide whether I want to use it or not, but don't deny me the tool. That's my big problem with life. Right? That I don't want somebody else to decide, as I have never, that this is what you need to know and this is what you don't. Because that's just another weapon of keep, keep, keeping people in their place and disallowing real social mobility. Yes. Brilliant. 
It's brilliant. I don't know where that even came from, but this conversation has just clarified it for me. It's brilliant because, yes, because I think what you said about being scared to even try to learn about it, like you said, it's because we actually do know deep down that it yep. matters and that yep. we're going to see how much it matters. And, and I think it is a step in growing up, not just about money, but with everything to go, oh, no matter how much distaste I have for, for different parts of life and the world, I am implicated because I'm alive and I can try to remain pure and separate. But if I'm, if I actually learn about it and I actually look at it, I will learn that I'm not that pure and I'm not that separate. And now I have a lot of hard work to do. Yeah. Um, especially if I want to think about justice and yep. to come full circle, not things aren't supposed to be hard. I'm not you, right? Yeah. If it's hard, I'm doing it wrong or I'm not good yeah. enough or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Or it's just so, life is supposed to feel good all the time and pleasurable. Yeah. Like that's what I'm being sold all the time. And things are supposed to be quick. So something's so wrong. It's all like my brain can't even handle it. Yeah. <laughs> right? we, we have to keep shifting the conversation to say, let, let's, let's learn about what's important for you. Let's, let's think about the fact that we need to make sure you are learning to think and learning to feel and learning to plan for your future, which involves both having the agility to switch careers because things will change and the agility to understand money so that we are not completely at the mercy of, you know, financial decisions that are made that we have no understanding of. It's, it's, it's a scary concept, absolutely. But, you know, my approach now at this stage, and this is going back to Alkadevika, is this question that we can always start small. And going right back to being a writing peer, tutor, and teacher, we can always start with one little word, one conversation. Somewhere, somehow, it doesn't have to start big to have meaning. And my approach to my business is the same. I'm like, if I get one coaching client and I get, you know, one payment, that's more than I had two months ago, right? And to really scale, this is, this is what I would probably say to people who are listening and to myself. This is a mantra I've, I've been really trying to own these last 12 weeks because it's been very tough. It has to be small. It has to be baby steps. It's, it's very much one foot in front of the other. It's very much eating the elephant one bite at a time. Again, so going back to that, we have these lessons in place, right? We, humans have been doing this for 5,000 years. We have the wisdom in place. Journey of a thousand miles starts with one step, right? Um, slow and steady wins the race. These adages that are there but we have forgotten because, well, we've bought into this other version, right? That everything is speed and quick. But one doesn't have to because we feel the pain inside. Like you said, we all know the pain of feeling lost or feeling insecure or feeling scared or feeling like I'm going to, you know, die in a box in New York City. So we want to, we need to do something about it, whether it's through your podcast or through a conversation. Uh, I genuinely, genuinely believe this, that every little bit matters. 
for the individual, if not for the entire group. Because there's just no other way. Yeah, and you know, it's funny because when you talk about planning for the future and um, any time I have been asked in a review at work, like, so where do you want to be in five years? I have been like a deer in headlights. <laughs> um, and I think some of that is because actually values can be tricky too, especially because I think we're in a very like deconstructive, a time of a lot of deconstruction um, culturally, which is important and like a good thing in a lot of ways, but also can be very disorienting. Maybe it's also, I'm saying this from a position of being a middle-class cisgender white woman, you know, mm -hmm. um, who has benefited from a lot of the ways that things have been and not in other ways too. Um, mm -hmm. Between kind of the individualism and seeing how harmful so many of our systems are and how unjust and how, and the ulterior motives behind some cultural values like that can be disorienting. Does that make sense? It can be paralyzing. Yeah. That's my thing. I'm like, what if right now, even now, as I'm saying this, I'm like somewhere, somehow someone's going to listen to this and, and feel demotivated and feel that I wasn't able to speak to them or what I said was harmful to them. Practically speaking, I am grateful that I'm even in a place where ideas are heard right. at the same time. I also am very cognizant that for any of us, right? What is my value may not be someone else's value. And one has to make space and have courage to be okay with that. And I mean that along the continuum of, you know, liberal to conservative. Again, that's the philosophical part and that's very important. At the same time, I have to believe that we cannot let that stop us from taking action. Yes, that's where I find all of your your emphasis on micro goals mm -hmm. really, really helpful yep. and like slowing down and micro goals because if you are the type of person who balks at five years from now, you know, then what about today, right? Yeah. yeah. Some, one of the things that, again, there is so much inspiration out there. I'd read something recently just because somebody else is on their chapter 30 doesn't mean I can't be on my page one. Mm -hmm. right. and, and again, trusting that, of course, I'll make mistakes. Of course, I'm going to have a conversation with somebody who's going to say, you know what, that, that was an affront or that was wrong or that was hurtful, at which moment I have two ways of reacting. I can either shut down and go on the defensive or I can listen and then I can talk to a couple of other people. So this is where mentorship really matters. People I trust who I can ask, okay, did I mess up? Because beyond a point, of course, there's going to be perspective difference. But I think, again, we take that to an extreme because we go straight to the fear of where it's going to all fall apart. I Maybe it's just a survival mechanism, but I want to believe that there's a lot of things one can do before that space where we are making such a huge mistake that we are really harming somebody. Yes. And the fact that we even have the self-consciousness to keep questioning that 
is, is what I have to trust is going to hold me in check along with my colleagues and friends and conversations like these because the fear of making a mistake cannot stop us from taking action. Because then we will just end up, and this is whether it's financial literacy or whether it's talking about race and gender and very complicated issues. Being afraid is wonderful because it means we're going to be careful, but being afraid cannot be the end point. Yes. Right? We have to have courage. And it's hard and it's scary, but the, otherwise there is going to be no change. Right? We're going to keep repeating the same mistakes over and over. And I just find, again, I would have been very different in my 20s and I would have just stayed in my shell and not stuck my neck out and said, I'm, I'm not, going, not going to engage with the world. It's too scary. But I find, and I suppose this is pretty typical of, uh, you know, the human emotional development too. Eric Erickson has this wonderful and, you know, pretty well-established theoretical framework of the stages of human development and where people are in their teens and 20s is very different from when where they are in their 30s and 40s and beyond in 50s and 60s what is a value becomes very different right um, and people change and there's more courage and more just ability to again hold very complex things in place but going back to to my 20s self I would say the thing I didn't know then was learning. So it sounds so cliched and I laugh at myself, but I really started saying this more and more. The best thing one can do when one is still young is stop the distraction and actually learn the content. I wish I had understood the value of this back then mm. because once you have the content knowledge, whether it's about stocks and bonds and whether it's about you know, racial complexity or socioeconomic problematics. And I'm not saying you have to know it all. Obviously, again, that's a mental trap. But if we can stop the distraction and really focus on content knowledge a little bit more, then people would have the ability to have those difficult conversations because you know what you're talking about. I think the biggest challenge for someone like me who's grown up in a half and half world, in a world where there was no social media and where now there is, and I see the difference in terms of the complete obsession, the obsessive mind, right? Because it's distraction and the mind loves distraction. It'll do anything to look at the next post and the next video and not want to sit down and learn. So that's where the training comes in. And I know I sound so old fashioned, but I believe it works because once you start learning, you start being more confident. And once you start being more confident, you're able to deal with more complex, difficult conversations without feeling like it's going to rip your soul out because you made a mistake. Yes. Right. And the last thing I'll say here is, you know, we don't have to learn by looking at big books. Uh, I might, I think I said this to you last time. Uh, if you want to study about stocks and bonds, 10 minutes of YouTube every day for three months is going to make you know so much more than you know now. 
10 minutes of listening to a topic that is scary? Just it, just 10 minutes, one YouTube video or two YouTube videos. Consistency, if somebody does that every day for 30 days or 60 days, that is how neural pathways work. The person will know a whole lot more about that topic than they did when they started. There's just no way around that. I think that is also very helpful for people who, like you said, I mean, I think pretty much everyone is more distracted now because we are inundated oh. with distractions. Yep, yep. especially um, now. Yes. Yeah. And for people who do have, you know, strong anxiety and depression, Yep. Um, it is that much harder now. And I really appreciate when you have spoken about depression yeah. um, on your blog. And, and I think that is really like something that I think about all the time is, um, have you read any books by Pema Chodron or like, yep. to, yeah. Yep. Um, I think when things but, fall apart is one yes. of my favorite books. Yeah. And I love listening to her talks. I have some CDs of her talks that I keep in the car. And a lot of what she, it's, she talks about little sips yep. of little sips of presence or little yep. sips of um, calming yourself or, and she talked about depression. She says, you know, it might mean you just stand up and splash your face with cold water, Yep. you know, and look in the mirror and say, Okay. I, I did can, that. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you know, she has that famous quote, like, if you can sit for 1.6 seconds in the hot loneliness where yesterday you could only sit for one, that's the path that's, of the warrior or something yeah. like that. Um, so could you talk about, you know, from your experience when, when you are, I feel like I just, it's more and more in the world that we live in. I feel heavy and I feel yeah. unfocused and mm -hmm. like, it's, oh, it's like I'm moving through sand or, you know, something yeah. like that. Summer um, in I, Calcutta. Yeah. If you step <laughs> yeah. out for real, I just yeah. walk out and it's a hundred percent humidity and a hundred degrees. And you really have a very visceral experience of walking through weight. Mm. And that's what depression feels like. Mm. And, you know, I'm very, very open about, because I'm also extremely passionate about mental health advocacy. Uh, I've, I've had depression pretty much most of my life. And I used to think this as a joke, but apparently now there's actual studies out there kind of backing up my theory that a lot of people who are highly cognitively and emotionally intelligent do tend to be also on the melancholy side. Mm -hmm. And there's an entire, and again, in terms of stories and literature, we know that. We know that people who are sensitive and creative also often have struggled with deep despair to the point of, you know, deciding that life is not worth living. None of this is new in the literary world or the creative world where the deeper you feel, uh, the ability to represent life in its, in its beauty and its complexity, you also feel the, the darkness. The more you feel the light, the more you feel the darkness. Yes. Right? Um, but in the more production-oriented world, where, again, we have lost 
the, uh, for now, I am always eternally hopeful, but for now we seem to have lost that ability to balance our productive lives along with our introspective lives. I'm, I'm a big fan of talking about mental health because it's for me, again, it's very practical. It's about success in the body politic. It's about success as an earning member of society. It's, it's about being able to live a life that at the end of it, one is able to say, okay, I did the things that would, you know, I did and they were done well enough and I'm, I'm okay enough to you know, be content with dying. So as much as, again, I can talk about mental health advocacy as a philosophical piece, to me, it's very much also an economic social justice piece because it's important for people to claim mental health because that is what lets people be successful right and i'm very open about my own struggles uh, both with depression and i have crohn's disease which i've had since i was about 24 and so i have had experience and continue to experience what it is like to live with uh, invisible different abilities disabilities and in in my teens and 20s if somebody had sat me down and said that one day i would feel so passionate and hopeful about life i would not have believed them because the despair was so deep the sense of helplessness and hopelessness at the human condition was so deep and because i didn't have you know cbt uh, cognitive behavioral therapy and people helping me to think through mental traps and thinking traps and all the ways our logic itself can help us step out of it, right? There are a lot of just very practical tools without necessarily even believing in therapy, uh, just training the mind to understand how much of our thinking is false can be a tremendous help. But all of it put together, I think back then, I could have never imagined feeling the way I know I feel about depression now, which is mostly it's a gift because I've had the privilege of having excellent therapists and books and just living life and having lost friends to it and to other disabilities to realize that if you strip everything else away, at the end of the day, the thing that mattered the most still, and again, instinctively, I think most humans know this, it's two things that matter. One is belonging and one is mattering. When people feel they belong and when they feel they matter, a lot of the extraneous difficulties are not things that sweep them away when we feel like we don't belong and or we don't matter and i i don't think it's an either or if we don't belong we cannot matter and if we don't matter we cannot belong so it's it's definitely two things that are conjoined um at this stage i realize that that is something i can personally talk about with with people having gone through that experience of you one always does matter uh, the belonging is a little bit more tricky because again we live in very fractured uh in a atomized kinds of world but the mattering is something that we can train people to understand and so i keep going back to this training 
one always matters always 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 matters and and it sounds i'm a broken record when i do this nowadays but hope is so important belief in self-efficacy is so important having the courage to believe that doesn't matter what the world is telling me or what my mind is telling me beyond both of those there is a place where i can train and grow in understanding that there are always ways to matter and so that you were talking earlier about values our values change but i think at the core most of our human values tend to stay the same we all want to be loved we all want to be taken care of we all want to be needed and we all want to be able to give love and take care of and and need and maybe i'm sounding hyper philosophical but i think about this a lot these days that if we strip everything away you take away the bling and the and the big houses and the money obsession and and you look at what is making people so lonely and so alone and so sad and like you said weighed down right it's because we've we are at a place where we don't find ourselves belonging and mattering right and so again to scale it back the way parmachandran says it's tiny little things when it comes to days of depression for me there are days when in literal terms getting out of bed is put one foot down and then the other foot down and that's victory but i've gone through so many cycles of it at this point that i know that it'll end that i will come out of it that i have friends that i have medication that i have absolutely zero shame i think it's i'm because i'm hyper intelligent is why i'm hyper depressed and i'm completely fine with that storyline um because it's a hopeful storyline it's a hopeful narrative and so people who are listening i'm not going to say that depression and anxiety and mental health issues are again they're not easy things at the same time if we find our way to the right treatment the right people and the belief system that you matter i mean it just one doesn't have to prove anything or earn a certain amount of money just just the existence of you makes you matter but to shift it to that calling how you matter is is the beauty of the journey i think because that's 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 the core of where i am today i make my depression matter i make my struggles matter even if it's to one person right and so that's why it's become a calling even beyond passion because passion has nothing to do with this right um it's a calling because i believe that i have a responsibility to use what i have learned from my struggles and my successes to then give hope to somebody else because i wish when i was 15 that somebody had been able to give me that hope that maya one day you're going to look back and realize that you're actually a pretty kickass human being irrespective of whether anybody else on the planet believes that or not right so that hope giving is what creates the calling and the ability to use our struggles even if i'm 15 i can still probably talk to somebody who's 9 and say hey it's kid it's going to be okay i know it's hurting right now every single person has the ability to comfort someone else 
and show kindness to someone else and compassion to someone else. The thing is we need to be trained to do that. It doesn't happen willy-nilly, right? And so that's where I keep back coming back to mental health training, self-confidence training, financial confidence training. Because if we stop living in fear, then it's easier to give. We can't give when we are afraid. I know that was a long spiel, but that's my take on mental health. Get better so that you can make somebody else's life better. Because what else is there at the end of the day? Oh gosh, there's so much in that. Like my, <laughs> my brain, it's beautiful. I think like, I'm going to stop now. No, <laughs> I don't I'm want just you to. Warm. I'm just no. getting warmed up. If you enjoyed part one of my conversation with Maya, head back here tomorrow for part two or subscribe to the Perennials podcast wherever you get your podcasts and part two will show up in your feed as soon as it's published. I'm Victoria Russell. Thank you so much for listening. And you can find me on Instagram at Perennials Podcast. Or if you want to reach out, feel free to send me an email to perennialspodcast at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. Bye.